This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au The reading from Mark chapter 14 verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you, Anchor? So good to be with you again. Um, I've really missed uh, doing this, and um, I'm just glad that I get the honor and the opportunity uh, to do this uh, with you together. My name's Arnaldo, and I'm the Equipping Kids Pastor here at Anchor Church, and if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you later on. Just a quick plug again about August 11th uh, from 7 p.m. It's going to be in Dulwich Hill at the Salville Center. Uh, I'm really encouraged uh, that the prayer team has really pushed this. Um, uh, this, is not, uh, th- this is something that we, we feel is incredibly important as we open up our hearts and our minds and we, we give them over to God and we say, do something. And I feel and we all feel uh, like that little boy uh, who went up to Jesus with uh, just a few loaves of bread and some fish and just gave him what he had. And, and the Lord was able to feed uh, thousands and thousands of people. And so as we come to this and as we come into our second service, uh, may that picture be the picture in your mind that we, we are uh, but little children uh, with, with whatever we can give, whatever we have. And if we offer that to God, we, we expect him uh, to do a mighty work through that. And so last week we started this series uh, called Follow Me uh, to, uh, in order for us to learn to love and live in the way of Jesus, like Jesus. And last week, uh, Brad introduced us to Jesus. He introduced us to who he is, that he is fully God, fully man, that he came to rescue sinners. And today my mission is to talk about his mission, about what is it that Jesus came to do specifically And as we do that, as we go into that, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me uh, to speak, to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for you, to remember the things that will be, and that you would have a heart posture uh, of, of openness and tenderness to his word to you this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. And we don't we don't take that word lightly. You are good. You are truly good. Only you are good. And so help us to see your goodness this morning. Help us to taste your goodness this morning. Help us to be just uh, enthralled by your beauty this morning, Jesus. For those who are far away from you here this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw them near. And those who are near you, Lord, we pray that you would light them on fire with your love and with your spirit. 
I humbly ask you, Lord, now to speak through me as your servant. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And amen. Uh, I, I want to approach this in three ways. And in order for us to understand what Jesus came to do, what his mission was, we need to understand a couple things. One is we need to understand the context of his mission. We need to understand the content of his mission. And we need to understand the consequence of his mission. A plus for alliteration. So the context of his mission, the content of his mission, and the consequence of his mission. And that why the, the reason why context particularly is so incredibly important is because oftentimes when we come to the scriptures and when we come to the story of Jesus, it's like walking in to the wrong movie theater or, or your movie just a bit too late. I remember one time, I forget which movie I was supposed to see, uh, but it wasn't Saw, right? Uh, I'm not into those things. I, I, I don't particularly like them. But I remember walking into a movie theater. I was late. I was, I was harried. I, I sat down, you know. Um, I think I was by myself. I had this huge popcorn. You know, I was loving it. This is life. And I'm just sitting there about five minutes. I'm like, this is a bit, this is a bit dark, you know. It's, and then and then just stuff started happening. And I, I, just, I freaked out. And I walked out. I said, oh, this is the wrong movie theater. And oftentimes, when we think about Jesus and we think about what he came to do, we get a wrong picture because we don't get the full picture of what he came to do. We don't understand the context, the answer that he is. We forget what the question is. And so really quickly, I want to I walk, walk you through the context. And it's this. The context of Jesus' mission is the story of the presence of God coming through the kingdom of God. The story of the presence of God coming through the kingdom of God. Jesus' mission altogether was to make God available and present to us. And this is, this is not nothing new. Jesus' coming was radical for sure. But it wasn't absolutely new. We see God wanting to be with his creation at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, we find that in the garden, in Genesis 3, what we find is God walking in the cool of day, chilling, just walking with his, walking with Adam, walking with Eve, his little children naked, running around, having fun. He's with them. God is a with us God, even from the beginning. And then we find that in Genesis 3, when, uh, when they fall, when they plunge into uh, uh, disobedience, God, later on, we, we see in Genesis uh, uh, 4 to 11, this deep spiral of sin and chaos. In Genesis 12, a new word comes, and he calls this man Abraham, and he calls him out, and he says, through you, I will bless the nations. What a word. Through you, I will bless the nations. And to this nation, to Israel, he gave something called the tabernacle when, while they were wandering in the desert. And the, the purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could tabernacle with them, which means he can be with them. And later on, when they enter into the land, God asks uh, David and his son Solomon to build a temple. Why? So he can be with them. And then at the climax of the story, we find Jesus. And John 1.14 says that Jesus came in the flesh. Why? To tabernacle with us, to be with us, to be God with us. That's his name, God with us, Emmanuel. And then Jesus gives the Spirit so the Spirit can be with us. And he gives that to the church. And one day, one day, there's going to be a new creation where the Bible says God will be with his people. Unless we understand that Jesus comes to bring us the presence of God, we will misinterpret the gospel. 
what he came for. So often we think, and one of the ways that we are in danger of uh, misconstruing the gospel, of maybe not understanding the gospel, is to make it just personal. It's just about you and Jesus. It's just a hell out, a get out of hell free card. It's just about God one day is going to destroy the creation, destroy the world, and hopefully you'll be on the bus to heaven. This sort of disembodied existence where I don't know what we do. And unless we understand that creation is good, that God's purposes in the gospel, in Jesus, is not, it, it, it is not to do something radically different, but to actually enact what he wanted to do from the beginning, which is be with us in our humanity, in our flesh, in our bone. Jesus didn't come to make us more spiritual. He came to make you more human. He came to ground you into your existence, into your circumstances, and to be different in them, not to just take you out of them. And so, the context of Jesus' mission is to be found in the plot line of what God was doing in the garden, his pursuit of his kingdom in the midst of his people. And Jesus is that king, and the king brings the kingdom. And on the cross, what we find is Jesus being revealed as king, not being made king as such. It's sort of like in the Lord of the Rings. You have Aragorn, you know, the, the meme. He's a meme now. But uh, Aragorn, it was a movie. It really did come out of a movie. And at the end of uh, the Lord of the Rings, he's crowned as king. Now, that didn't make him king. He was king all along. But he was revealed as king. And what the cross does, it reveals Jesus as king as who he really already is. And the kingdom of God is this, what he brings, the kingdom of God is his rule, his reign, and people yielding to that reign. And the kingdom of God is implemented wherever his rule and reign is acknowledged and submitted to, wherever the presence of God is, as sovereign and as king, there is the kingdom. It's interesting that when he approaches uh, a group of Pharisees, uh, um, he says that the kingdom is among you. It's in your midst. It's here because the king is here. And we'll talk about some of the tension of why we don't see that in our lived experiences, but we'll get there in just a minute. That's the context. The context is a story of God's presence being brought to us through God's kingdom. Now, the content of Jesus' mission is this. It's his atoning life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And all of those are incredibly important. Some theologians have called uh, his life his active obedience. And what we need to understand is that Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. I think if you know yourself, that's amazing. Even if you had every advantage in life, if you had emotionally stable parents and a good upbringing and everything on your side to live a decent life, we know we have every single one of us fallen short. We have broken someone's heart at some point, especially your parents. Sorry to break it to you. They'll have to talk. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our what? Our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Yet without sin. Jesus was 
sinless. That is incredibly important to hold. That is a hill that we die on as Christians. Jesus was sinless in his active obedience. And in his death, uh, what people call his passive obedience, which is that he died the death that we deserve as a substitution. John Stott, the late John Stott, would say this. He would say uh, that uh, really both sin and salvation is about substitution. Sin really at its essence, it's not just breaking some rules, although it inevitably leads to that. It's really substituting ourselves for God. And salvation, he says, is then God substituting himself for us. And in Mark 14, 24, it says, And then he said to them, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is what? Poured out for many. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, that's a title that Jesus would often use for himself, Son of Man, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, this is with a towel around his waist, but to serve. And what? And to give his life as a ransom for many as a substitute for many. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. By what? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so just like Jesus' Jesus's sinlessness is absolutely essential to the gospel, so is his substitutionary death for us. You take away the substitution of the cross, you, take, you gut the gospel. You gut the gospel. But he doesn't stay dead. Jesus' victory in his bodily resurrection. Mark uh, 10, he goes on to say this in Mark Seeing as we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, again, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him and flog him and kill him, but, and after three days he will rise. Let let me, you, you know, it's interesting. Jesus over and over and over and over tells his disciples very plainly, and even there's some points in the gospel where it says, and he said this plainly, over and over again, and I will rise, and I will rise. And then they don't believe the testimony of the women who find them. You know, oftentimes people think that back then, uh, these guys were uh, just, just a bit incredulous. They believed anything, that, you know, they, they, were, uh, they were superstitious. Of course they believed in a physical bodily resurrection. They were dumb. I mean, we have, like, science now. We have, we have airplanes and iPhones and, you know, 85, 90% of people don't really know how they work. But, you know, we have them. They, even they, even they didn't believe which gives evidence to me that this really happened and it really changed their lives. But it doesn't just stop. So often we, we talk about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. But the ascension, his going up is incredibly important for his mission for several reasons. I'm just going to mention just once is that Jesus' presence through his absence. And that's a bit paradoxical. That Jesus is more present to us through his absence. Jesus had to leave in order for the Spirit to come. 
John 16, 7 says this, nevertheless, this is Jesus. Let me just give you the quick context. This is a, a, a speech that Jesus gives to his followers uh, just before he dies. And he says this, excuse me, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? I bet that if we were going to take a poll and we would say, um, what, do you, what would you prefer, uh, the spirit inside of you, among you, or Jesus next to you? What would you say? I mean, G- I'm, I'm talking about Jesus, right? Like, like Birkenstocks and all, Jesus, that Jesus. Do you want that Jesus next to you or the spirit inside of you? I mean, I would, I would, I would wager that most of us and a lot of us would say, I, I, I would want to see Jesus. I'd want him next to me. But his own very word says, it is to your advantage. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so incredibly important for the mission of Jesus is the sending of the Spirit. And we often miss that point. We stop at the resurrection, and, and the resurrection is, I mean, the first among many who will be resurrected, and it is an amazing thing that from the power of God, Jesus was dead and was raised from the dead, and yet he left, and he left so that the Spirit can come. And so Jesus' mission, the content of his mission, was to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he was abandoned on the cross as he died the death that you and I deserve. He paid our penalty as a substitution. He was raised up in the power of God. He ascended to the right hand of glory. And he poured out his spirit on on his people so that they too can walk in new resurrection life. Now. And all this is so that God would dwell with his people. You know, at the heart of the gospel is a God who would rather see himself be torn apart than abandon his people. In Genesis 15, there's this, uh, um, uh, this picture where when God calls Abraham out of, out of, out of, uh, out of us, out of his place, he, he, uh, he calls him out. He says, through you, I will bless all the nations. And then in Genesis 15, he makes this pact with him, this covenant it's called. And in the covenant, back in the day, well, t- today, how you sign a covenant is, you, well, you just sign a covenant, right? You, with ink, paper. Back then, you would sign it with blood. You would, you would take some animals, and that's the picture that we find in Genesis 15, is God tells Abraham, you take these animals, you cut them in half. And what you would do as you cut a covenant, and that's the word that they use is cutting a covenant, you would place the animals... One half on your left, one half, uh, the other half on your right, and you would walk through them. And what that was supposed to symbolize was that if you do not keep the stipulations of the covenant, of the pact, of the agreement that we have, may you be torn like these animals. And Abraham was supposed to walk through. But Abraham didn't walk through. This pot of fire symbolizing God walked through. And he said, even if you break the covenant, I'm going to be torn to shreds. That's the God at the heart of the gospel. 
who will not leave us to ourselves and our own resources. And finally, what's the consequence of all of this? What does this all mean? And just a few. One is uh, that God... Uh, Jesus brings us to the Father. Uh, Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. So we, we don't re-crucify God on the cross. We don't re-crucify Jesus on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous, right? That's that substitution. That he might what? That he might. This is a purpose clause, right? Uh, I'm I'm sorry to to do that, uh, but you need to understand that purpose clauses are incredibly important. Why did he die for our sins? It's not just so that we can escape earth and go into heaven one day. Why do this? To bring us to God. It's all about being in his presence. One of the consequences of the gospel is that we get a person, not just a doctrine, not just an idea, not just an escape, not just a place, but a person. Additionally, he defeats the powers and the principalities, everything evil in this world that sets itself up against God. And this can take so many shapes. This can take a shape as, as uh, evil corporations or racism or sexism, you name it. And, and evil uh, beings will in, imbue that, that system and set itself up against the, uh, the purposes of God. Colossians says this, Paul. Paul in Colossians says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, speaking of us, that's you, that's me, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, past, present, future, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and this is what he did. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, that, that, those words, rulers and authorities, that those words Paul often uses for evil demonic powers in the world. And what he's saying is that on the cross, when evil thought they had won the day, Jesus somehow was laughing, mocking them by what he was doing. If you remember um, uh, Narnia, uh, there's a scene where, where Aslan puts himself in the place of Edward, I think his name is, a little guy who likes Turkish delight. And, um, and so you have all these sort of ogres and monsters, and, you know, and they take him away, they, they shave his mane off, a sign of uh, extreme shame. They tie him up, they kill him. And they were all cheering. Cheering, mocking. But there was a deeper magic, C.S. Lewis writes. There was a deeper magic. There was something else going on on the cross. Not just Jesus' defeat, but in fact, his victory. And ours, with him. And finally... So he doesn't only bring us to the Father, not only defeats the evil uh, uh, purposes and beings in the world, but he renews the universe through the cross. The cross sets off this radical renewal of all things, this radical renewal of every living and non-living thing in the universe. Nothing will be untouched by the cross. 
Romans 8 says this. For, Paul again, for the creation awaits with eager longing. And that word, those words eager longing is this this panting, this waiting, this on edge. The creation eagerly waits, longs for the revealing of who? Of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. We don't have to argue that point. But not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day, the creation will be healed. And this is all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Let me read you this quote from a book called Salvation Means Creation Healed. It says this, central central to this plan, this plan is the reconciliation of persons to God through the blood of Jesus. That's central. That people, sentient beings, us, we come into a relationship, a healing and loving relationship with God. The the reconciliation won by Christ reaches to all the alienations that result from our sin. Alienation from God, alienation from ourselves, alienation between persons, and between us and our physical environment. The biblical picture, therefore, is at once personal. There is a personal aspect to it. It's ecological, and it's cosmic. As mind-boggling as the thought is, Scripture teaches that this reconciliation even includes the redemption of the physical universe from the effects of sin, as everything is brought under its proper headship in Jesus. That is exciting to know that one day God will renew the universe, our very physical nature. He's not going to throw it away. Our physicality was a part of creation, not a part of the fall. Yes, the fall has deeply incapacitated us. There's much pain in this room. There are people who can't be here because they're in so much pain. You will experience pain. I don't know what the median age is here, but you better get used to the fact that this world is broken. Yes, it's beautiful, but it is deeply, deeply broken. And the more broken you experience it, the more you will sing, Maranatha, Lord, come and heal this world. Heal this world. And so we need to wrestle with this concept that's been really helpful for me, which is called the now and the not yet, although the already and the not yet of discipleship. There are things in Scripture that tell us that, yes, there are, there are foretastes of the kingdom of God, and this is one. As we join together, as we love one another, as we speak words of encouragement to one another, as we fight well and forgive, as we share our resources with one another, as we do these things, as we forgive our enemies, as we give a cup of cold water to the least of these, what that does is that it gives a preview and a a, a taste of the kingdom of heaven. I remember I was at a wedding recently. I was hungry. I wasn't hungry. I was hungry, right? And you're sort of waiting around in the foyer. You know, I got my kids with me. They're looking all snazzy. They were actually pretty well behaved. And and I'm just waiting for dinner, and I'm just hungry. And then these these servers come out, right? These servers come out with these hors d'oeuvres. I got excited. I got really excited. That's us. The world is hungry for something. The world is hungry for a meal that nourishes 
but it's stuffing itself with junk. And we're just those waiters. We're hungry too, but we have some foretaste of what's coming. That's who we are. When we live out our discipleship, that's who we are. We are a beautiful foretaste of the kingdom. And so what this means for us is what it meant for every disciple. And the first word of the gospel is this. This is Jesus, Mark 1. Jesus comes onto the scene. His cousin, his kind of crazy cousin John, uh, has been preaching. And he comes up on the scene and he says this, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first word of the gospel is repent. And so what does it mean for us? If you don't know Jesus here today, I'm going to invite you to repent and turn to him. That's your word for today. If you're far from Jesus, to come near, repent. And what does repent mean? Repent means that we change our mind, we change our lives through his power so that we can see things the way he sees things, so that we can see the world not through the lens of our culture, but we can see the world through the lens of the scriptures, that we would have his heart, that we would have his mind, that we would have his thoughts, that we would have his compassion. We change from thinking that we can run our own lives. I don't care how old you are, but you, we change from thinking that we run our own lives and knowing that we submit to the king. Repentance is not just a one-time act, but it is a way of life. So if you do follow Jesus here, the word for you here today is to repent. The gospel is not just, as, as Tim Keller says, the ABC of the Christian faith, but the A to Z. And every single day, we need to come back to this word, this good word. And repentance has, has taken some really bad and negative connotations. But let me try to help you paint a picture of what repentance looks like. Repentance means that you are now living more in line with the grain of the universe, with the way that God created the world to actually operate. That you are going with the grain of the universe. You are humanizing yourself as you repent. You're becoming more human. You're becoming more of who God has made you to truly be. Repentance is like when a, you know, so, so often what we try to do and what repentance feels like, it's like picking an open scab. We just rip it off. Repentance is that that scab heals and it just falls off. Repentance is healing for you. And the way that we do that, the way that we have chosen now to, to help uh, lead you as you do that is that we, have, uh, we, we want to do some practices together as we repent. How do we change our minds about what we think about ourselves, God, and the world? Well, we do certain things. We, we become a community of orthodoxy that's right believing and orthopraxy, which is right doing. And we need both. A community of right believing. How, how do we get new at beliefs, not to stay up in our minds, but to really sink their roots down into our hearts and in our guts so that we don't, uh, so this becomes second nature to us. So that the way we see the world, the scriptures become the lens through which we see the world. Not your news feed, not what's happening on CNN or MSNBC or Fox, whatever you watch. I don't, it, it's not that you see the world primarily through that, but you see the world primarily through the scriptures. How do we do that? A small way is that we take our follow me cards, we take these, and we immerse ourselves in the scriptures. 
This is one way that we can, as a community, practice our repentance. Abide journals that we, that we sell at the back. Many of you already own them. But I encourage you again to begin to journal and to read through the scriptures. Our, our heart here for you today is that we would become devoted disciples of Jesus. This whole series is about us helping you and you helping us live this out in community that we would all render our lives and yield ourselves to the goodness of Jesus. We need both right believing and right behaving because this is what happens. What do we have right believing and right behaving? It fuels our imagination. Just think about this. What do you think about when you're not thinking? Where does your mind go? How would you answer the question, if I just had this, I would be happy? If I had better health, if I had my student loans, uh, my student debt wiped away, if I just had a partner, if I had a better partner, if my kids would just behave, if I had a house, if I had a name on it, what is it for you that says, if I had this, I would finally be happy? That is fueled by your imagination, not so much, you know what to think. You, you know what to think, and yet you don't. Why? Because we are more led by our imagination, by our gut, oftentimes than by our brain. So how do we change it? We change it by immersing ourselves in a new story. We change it by reading the scriptures. We change it by being in community. We change it as we speak the gospel to one another in gospel triplets, as we repent of our sin, and we see that as a gift, not as a burden. And so the good life, how do we fuel our imaginations for the good life? So often, you know, I, I look for a silver bullet. I look for a new book. How can this change? And it's as simple as yielding ourselves to Jesus. So where is one, one area of your life today that's not yielded to Jesus? Is it your pocketbook? Your bank account, your sexuality, your thought life. You think, well, if I can just think it, Jesus can stay out of that. Where, where is it? Where, where is it that the Holy Spirit may be pressing on you right now? Is it success? Business success, church success, whatever it is. What is it that you don't want to give over to Jesus? It's safe because that's the only place where you can be healed. Let me just end here. And I, I just love the way that Eugene Peterson says this, and this is our heart for you uh, at, through this series, is that we would not be conformed to the image of the world. Romans 12 says this, and I just want you to hear this for you. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, going to work and walking around kind of life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't 
become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your intention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well formed maturity in you. And that's what we want. Well-formed maturity. There's this picture in the Psalms. I said I'd end there, but I'm going to end here. (laughs) There's this picture in the Psalms, Psalm 1. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a a picture of 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 a tree that has been planted by streams of water. And when drought comes... The leaf doesn't wither. When life throws the worst at you, the question is how are we going to respond? Are we going to be trees, beautiful trees that are planted by streams of living water that no matter what happens to us, we can say God is good? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you call us on this journey of discipleship. We thank you that you have called us to partner with you as we journey in discipleship. We ask you now, Lord, to be with us. We ask that as we sing, as we commune together, that you would be among, that your presence would be felt among us. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would be changing hearts, that you would be waking up people who maybe have been away from you for quite a while, that you would be drawing people near to you now, we pray. And we ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.